I'm Anna, and I'm a youth organizer who teaches sex ed. And I'm Antonia, and I'm a doula. We're here to share unfiltered information about self-managed abortion, otherwise known as SMA. We've interviewed people with wide-ranging perspectives on the medical, legal, technological, and personal questions that arise within SMA. We've built a chorus of voices that demystifies SMA and a platform that people already have as a part of their daily routines. We're not here to tell you what to do or to advocate for SMA, but rather to share stories. So this episode, we're chatting with Farah Diaz-Tello. She is a human rights lawyer and senior counsel for an organization called If When How, which is a national network of law students and lawyers who work together for reproductive justice. We wanted to chat with Farah because we wanted to get into what legal risks were involved with SMA. We definitely mutually had a moment where we were like, Anna and I, where we were like, uh, hmm. <laughs> this is, uh, maybe illegal, maybe illegal. So let's maybe talk to a lawyer and see what a lawyer thinks about this stuff. Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly complicated, the legal landscape of this right now, because for the most part, there really isn't precedent. And so what is really cool is that Farah and the team at If When How, they are talking about this and creating kind of a blanket of legal support for folks who, just like us, are trying to come up with answers to really, really, really hard questions surrounding choice, surrounding their bodies, surrounding um, care and what type of care folks can actually provide to other people. So it's, it's, we're just scratching the surface with this Mm -hmm. conversation, but she really gave us some beautiful compass points and we, we learned a lot. Vera, could you tell us when you first learned what an abortion was or give us sort of an approximation of whatever that that memory might be. Yeah. So I think hmm, thinking back, my first exposure was when I was in the sixth grade and it was kind of like floating around in the public discourse. Um, I think, I think at the time it was around George Bush the first and like people were saying like how good of a president he would make because of his opposition to abortion. And I I think I didn't really like understood what that meant. So I did what any young nerd would do. I went to the library at my school um, where they had these big binders of like news brief things. I don't even think these things exist anymore. And so I like looked it up and like tried to find out what it was all about. And the first thing I read was an article about Carol Downer's self-help work. So like my first understanding of this thing that was like politicized, I mean, growing up in Texas, it was vilified or whatever. My first exposure was to people who were taking charge of their own health and their own fertility. And so there was no part of me that understood that as like politicized or controversial. It was just care that people provided for themselves and other people. 
because my first exposure was to manual vacuum aspirations or menstrual extractions done with a Dell M, I was very confused as to like why there were clinics. It, right. Like it didn't, it wasn't something like I, I took <laughs> a bit more learning before I figured out like what it was that people were talking about. And I remember, yeah, I think that there was a clinic that was probably not far from where I was because I remember going past a building one time where people were carrying protest signs. It was like, babies are killed here. And and I I think I asked my Girl Scout leader, I was like, like, what is that? And she's like, just ignore that. (laughs) (laughs) And then at home, like with family, was it ever at the dinner table? Never. Not once. No, I was, I was um, raised Catholic and I, I, I think I went to a church that was particularly, um, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mentioned I grew up in Texas, in Austin, but in suburbs of Austin that are in Williamson County, which is much more conservative. But we, it was never something we talked about. I mean, I think our version of dogma, we didn't talk about gender or sexuality at all. It, the catechism was very like, well, you know, uh, they say the earth was created in seven days, but how do we know how God interprets a day? Like evolution mm-hmm. is probably okay. A little more focus on like this, the social justice teachings than on like the the dogma around sexuality and, and like questions of when life begins. I don't know that's changed at that parish since the, <laughs> the intervening many years, <laughs> but um, yeah, it never, never came up ever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you're in the library, you're in your head, you have a cool Girl Scout leader who's pointing you, telling you what's what's what. How then did this spark of like, oh, I, I want to work in this space, when did that develop for you? Uh, that was probably more in college. Well, okay, so I, th- I would say I was like a reproductive health hobbyist um, in yeah. college. Like the people I was hanging out with and all that, like that, that was just like the things that, that we were talking about, like how to how to take care of yourself. I mean, I feel like it was probably fairly similar to the genesis of our bodies ourselves. And also it was something that I found very empowering, like at the time being able to access healthcare and access reproductive healthcare uh, through the like the university health services and all that, it felt like a very empowering thing. And you know, the um, internet was still well, relatively young at that point, so you know, feeling like I had access to all this information was really appealing to my nerdy side. For a long time, I ignored a calling to the law, um, and yeah. I was always very like interested in social justice issues and like addressing problems our society is facing. So I think that, you know, in retrospect, it all makes sense that those things would have come together in the way that they did. Um, it didn't hit me until I was thinking about going to law school, but like I, I knew, or I think I eventually figured out that my trajectory was going to be toward the practice of law in service mm-hmm. of um, equality and liberation. And then given my reproductive health hobby I guess this this was like the sensical place for it Mm. and now it seems like your practice is focused on self-managed abortion yeah um it would be more accurate to characterize my work and the trajectory of my career as as being um about people's 
sovereignty over their own bodies and ability to make decisions without punishment. A lot of it has focused at the nexus of criminalization and reproductive health decision making. And for a while, especially when I was with the SIA legal team, that was the entire focus of the work. But um, since the merger with If When How Lawyering for Reproductive Justice, it also gets to encompass other areas like birth justice, people making autonomous decisions uh, about birthing, and some degree of work on on access to care for minors. We have strategic initiatives. I'm not going to launch into the whole thing, but anyway. <laughs> you mentioned that when you were first discovering abortion in the in the library, it was very much aimed at manual extraction and, and whatnot. Like, how did you feel when you first heard about these pills? Um, my first exposure to that was um, when articles were coming out about the approval of Mifepristone, which I guess at the time it was calling RU486, uh, which mm-hmm. sounds like I don't, I don't know, like some kind of radioactive agent. But it, again, it was one of those things that seemed like completely non-controversial. And and I think you know, again, I remember reading this is the the moral property of women and how this would be a big step toward. Uh, liberating abortion and my reaction was like well oh okay like that's like that's a cool thing sure like at the time maybe I hadn't fully comprehended um what it was like for people to get care in clinics so you know I didn't maybe have an understanding of what an uncomfortable process it could be like how humiliating it can be so I didn't fully see the the promise of of abortion pills but I was like primed to sort of embrace the new technology. Like, oh, right, of course. You know, if you could take a pill, why wouldn't you take a pill? It wasn't attached to like the idea of danger or stigma or anything like that. I think I hear from a lot of folks who have been uh, exposed to a lot of misinformation about the dangers of abortion pills. And that wasn't, (laughs) again, like because my first exposure was through like, French doctors have created this new thing and people can safely induce an abortion. It wasn't, it, it just wasn't fraught. Also, first of all, to be very clear, like in the introduction of Mifepristone, I don't think that there was a question about self-managed abortion. I think people were thinking about like, this would be another thing that would be delivered to people like through doctor's offices. The, the demedicalization component wasn't something that like, came into my framework about it until much later. <laughs> At the time, it wasn't like French doctors have invented this thing and someday people will get it through the mail and be able to <laughs> their own care. Like that, that was not what we were talking about, you know, and, yeah. and like very quickly thereafter, it was like in the FDA wants to, you know, make you jump through hoops and prove right. that you really need it. And like that, you know, I think um, U.S. lawmakers really hopped to restricting very quickly. I think the understanding of more self-managed care, like of, of, you know, people self-sourcing the means to end a pregnancy came more onto my mental map as I was starting to think about the issues in a much more nuanced way. I think that a lot of my perspective on reproductive health and delivery of care changed with my first birth, actually. Like I, you know, I mentioned before, I had found seeking healthcare 
to be like a really empowering experience generally. Um, but then my experience of being pregnant and giving birth really changed my perspective on a lot of it. I had, um, I mean, I was lucky to be able to mm-hmm. access a midwife here in New York City, even as a Medicaid recipient, but it took, I mean, months, <laughs> months and months of fighting. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I had a planned home birth that ended in a hospital transfer mm-hmm. and a C-section that was never like really explained as being necessary. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like at the time it was a, it was a really traumatizing experience, um, but it was also really catalyzing and I think helped cement the idea in my mind that what is sort of offered to people as like this, the standard menu of care um, might not fit their needs and might not uphold their dignity. And so coming from that, from the perspective of, of people who make decisions about birth that, uh, you know, physicians might not agree with, it was like, you know, a natural corollary that people might want other options for their abortion care as well. It wasn't a big like light bulb moment. It was just sort of a puzzle coming together. Like, of of course, of course, it would make sense. Like, if you know, people are treating yeast infections by like shoving cloves of garlic (laughs) in their vaginas. Like, like why wouldn't they want to find ways to like also end pregnancies? First out of law school, I was working with national advocates for pregnant women, Um, and the overarching framework there is of. providing legal advocacy for people who are finding themselves in conflict with the state in some way because of the fact that they're pregnant. So mm-hmm. essentially like if the state is going to try to designate a fetus as a legal person or treat them as though they have like a separate juridical personhood, mm-hmm. then that means that the state gets to control pregnant people throughout their pregnancies, throughout the decisions that they make, whether that's ending a pregnancy, carrying a pregnancy to term, how they give birth, right? Then, then that means that the state gets a say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that continuum included people making decisions to end a pregnancy outside of a, a um, formal medical system and also included um, people making decisions about birth, making autonomous decisions about birth. So I think like what had attracted me to that organization was the work around birth. Um, but the work was like all continuous and it involves, you know, doing criminal defense work on behalf of people who were uh, criminally prosecuted because they had used criminalized drugs during pregnancy and, and either gave birth or had an adverse pregnancy outcome. Um, and so then, so I think that was already a part of the work that I was doing. Um, and the shift to the CL legal team it was the self-induced abortion legal research team. Slurt. <laughs> I think we, you know, nice. don't don't let lawyers name things. Um, <laughs> and and you know the idea was it really emerged from needs um, in the reproductive justice, mostly advocacy community. Um, groups were concerned about patterns that were emerging in criminal prosecutions of people either who had ended pregnancy or were suspected of having done something to end a pregnancy and the, just the use of harsher criminal penalties against them. So like, you know, at the time, uh, Pravi Patel had uh, been prosecuted. Can Lisa Jones was arrested, right? Like this is all sort of in that area of like 20, 2014 to 16. Um, Anna Yaka was, was, 
prosecuted in Tennessee. Um, and reproductive justice groups like had questions about what it, what what the possibility of criminalization um, for self-managed abortion would mean in particular for marginalized communities and folks of color, low-income folks who are already like over-surveilled, um, more likely to come into contact with social service agencies and law enforcement that can, you know, wreak havoc on their lives through uh, criminal prosecutions. So a consortium of organizations came together. A lot of them were kind of smaller regional gender justice organizations like the Southwest Women's Law Center, uh, Legal Voice, Gender Justice out of Minnesota. Uh, if one how, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice was a part of that. At the time, they were mostly doing on-campus organizing with law students and the Center for Reproductive Rights and Justice at Berkeley. I, I might be missing more and I apologize to those, to the, those folks who were really like the um, the original see a legal team. Um, and the idea was that we're smart lawyers with some dedicated time and some smart interns. We can figure out what the law is, right? And do, do the research and then just like know the law and be able to answer questions for people. And then like, you know, <laughs> half a dozen interns and like two years later, it turned out that that's actually a much more complicated, um, complicated task. Because the law, uh, if, you know, for folks who have not been to law school, this is something I didn't realize. The law is not just what it says in the statutes. Yeah. The law is also people, <laughs> you know, and like the law is how the law is carried out and how it's been interpreted and all these things. Um, so it would be impossible. And I think that like, you know, I've seen many a sailor dashed on the rocks of thinking that like you can just put together a compendium of the law and that's going to be a helpful thing. So the team realized that like that just legal research is a pure science um, isn't necessarily helpful to folks. So it transitioned from being the, the legal research team to just being the legal team and to focusing more on um, legal research as an applied science and working to transform the legal landscape so that people who ended their pregnancies outside of the formal medical system could do so with dignity and without fear of punishment. And so um, that meant working more closely with, with grassroots groups who are coming into contact with, um, with pregnant folks uh, who had questions about, uh, you know, about self-managed abortion. Like these activists wanted to know how they could talk about this issue without exposing themselves to liability, without getting people into trouble. You know, they wanted to know like, what, what are the legal lines here? And like, what do we need to communicate to people? Then I mean, unfortunately, spoiler alert: like the legal lines, like only exist inside you. <laughs> it's like very kind of Yoda esque or whatever. But like, you know, it's not a lawyer's job to tell people what to do or what not to do. It's just like our job to spot the icebergs and let people decide how they want to navigate them. Um, so you know that that really transformed the work to a more of a litigation and policy focus, um, and. Uh, also involved the creation of the Repro Legal Helpline, um, which is a helpline. I mean, that's that is the website reprolegalhelpline.org, where people can go and actually get information about their rights um, with respect to self-managed abortion, and then you know ask questions. So we have like secure means of communication, um, and folks can be put in contact with a lawyer if they actually need one if they're concerned about 
criminalization, if they've been contacted by law enforcement, um, if they just want to know more about like what, you know, what their rights are. And then we merged with If When How um, to bring that work to organizing work they'd been doing among law students and lawyers. Um, and that was last March, March of 2019. It's so exciting to hear that there's an accessible free place where you can go and you can get answers to your questions in, in this space. So as a budding tiny baby lawyer who occasionally gets questions from friends, students, young people that I, I talk to through through my work, um, is there a constitutional right to abortion? And feel free to be like, Ugh, you know, don't want to go down like really nitty gritty law rabbit hole but like do I have yeah, a right to I this? mean the the simple answer is yes um the more nuanced answer is as with all things in the law it depends right mm -hmm. um I, I identify first and foremost as a human rights lawyer mm -hmm. um so from a human rights perspective in the U.S. no we have no right to an abortion like the constitution um you know guarantees uh that people can make a decision about whether to carry a pregnancy to term in particular before viability this you know it limits the amount of restrictions that the state can place on people making that decision um you know people have a, a right to seek an abortion throughout pregnancy if their uh, life or their health is at stake right there's also like the twisty road of of the Roe and Casey line of cases all the way on down to whole woman's health, right? Um, but I, that, I think, to me, doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. Um, from a human rights perspective, uh, a right is meaningless uh, unless people have access to the resources they need to effectuate that right. So if you um, live in Mississippi where there's only one provider left. I think actually there are like five other states where there's only only one provider. Like, do you really have a meaningful right mm. to abortion? Even if the constitution permits it, the, you know, the failure of any kind of state accountability for access to care um, makes the right pretty empty for a lot mm. of folks. And, and that's where I think self-managed abortion comes in. So, you know, to be nerdily clear on this, like the Supreme Court has never spoken directly to the question of self-managed abortion. Um, we know that throughout history and even all the way back to the common law before, you know, laws were codified, it was not considered a crime for people to end their own pregnancies. Like the idea of, of, of abortion as a right is like a sort of a 20th century concept. But if you, you know, go back to more like 18th, 19th century thinking, there are things that are just like liberties that exist because the state doesn't have control or punishment over them, or I guess like the power to punish over them. Mm -hmm. And reproductive health care fell in that realm. That was like, you know, it was like women's business. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how babies get into the world, how pregnancy happen or not, like, you know, bringing down the menzies, like all that stuff was like, nobody knows. Like <laughs> the law just mm -hmm. didn't really address that, um, except in sort of like protection of property way, right? So like if, if um, somebody harmed a pregnant person and then they later 
had a delivery of a live infant who like suffered some kind of harm or died subsequently, then like the person who harmed them could be criminalized. Uh, but that was really like, it wasn't applicable to the pregnant person himself. So by, by default, people had a right, but there was, you know, like they didn't go to clinics. They went to like their local midwives and their healers and the, you know, like the people who were providing that like women's business, reproductive health care that nobody really wanted any part of. Um, and that persisted until about the 1850s when medicine as a profession uh, started yeah. coming together and, and formalizing and wanting to determine what their, um, like what their, their scope of practice was going to be. And reproductive health care, I mean, if you think about it, you know, especially at the time, the majority of women were going to have a baby at some point, right? Like that would be pretty good business if um, doctors, if physicians, people with the title of physician could get into the business of um, delivering babies. Uh, And so what that entailed was a concerted effort to discredit the knowledge of midwives and other healers and uh, asserting on their part claim to a superior knowledge of like what fetal like like what fetuses actually were um and claiming a moral high ground on the issue of abortion so Mm -hmm. the earliest anti-abortion movement in the u.s was really a movement for the professionalization of physicians and an attempt to eradicate midwives um so like this you know the the question of criminalization and law and all that like really didn't come in until it was at the behest of people who wanted to call themselves physicians and then urged lawmakers to pass laws against abortion, against performing abortions. And so then like that's where the question even stems from of do we have a right Mm -hmm. um, to abortion really comes from the question of who has the right to perform an abortion. Which I think, like, ultimately is kind of a distraction from the fact that, like, mm-hmm. abortions and just like any any end of a pregnancy, a miscarriage, a live delivery, it, it is not something that the state can own, right? It's something that belongs to the body of the person it's happening to, um, and so you know, like, we end up with this sort of convoluted legal structure, you know, I described as like like the Roe and Casey progeny. That's all about who gets to perform abortions and where do they do them? And none of it really speaks to like, and, but what if you just do it yourself? (laughs) And so um, our job, my, my job is to protect that for people and ensure that the state doesn't use its punitive power to try to take that away from people. It seems like there isn't really a precedent around, like we haven't seen, as you indicated, criminalization of SMA specifically yet? Are you kind of preemptively trying to get creative around how one would interpret the law for these cases when they will eventually come up? Is that Mm. part of the work? It's part of it. I mean, I think I I would go back to what you said about whether like whether we've seen criminalization Um, and like, you know, the, the passage of criminal laws and the criminalization of people are two very different things, right? So so just as like a quick primer, the vast majority of states, there is not, it has never been a law that made it a crime for a person to end their own pregnancy. That is the, you know, the common law understanding. 
there are a small handful of states. It's five states now have laws on the books um, that are mostly holdovers from the 1800s that criminalize a person who submits to or solicits um, an illegal abortion and mostly, mostly misdemeanors. Um, those tend not to be used very frequently, although some of them have like New York, there was, there was an arrest of a woman in, in 2011. Um, and uh, we have been, paying close attention to those laws and making a concerted effort to remove those laws where they exist. Um, the much greater threat it comes from prosecutorial overreach and from practice. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, Pruvi Patel, Kinlesia Jones, right? Like they were in states that don't have a crime on the books um, that permits arresting people for having ended their own pregnancies, but prosecutors did so anyway, and in ways that are completely devastating to their lives. So I think our job is, is, you know, both on the policy front, right, to ensure that any potential threats in the law are repealed, that the laws are reformed, um, that that more protections for people's reproductive decision-making are installed in laws in as many places as possible, um, but then also on the litigation front, fighting against the unjust, just unlawful um, criminalization that people experience um, when when prosecutors take other laws that are not specifically applicable to a person who ends a pregnancy and misuse them that way. Is there any kind of like shared theme in the kinds of laws that get manipulated? Like what are the charges people get brought in for? Often when I'm teaching about this, you know, we break them out into categories, right? There are the, the actual criminal bans on self-managed abortion. There are the criminal abortion laws, the ones that were targeted at the midwives and other healers that are misused against people. So um, like essentially treating people as though they are their own, like quote unquote, illegal abortionist. Um, Then there are feticide and fetal homicide laws. Uh, And the perverse thing about these is that those laws were mostly passed in, uh, in the name of protecting pregnant people from harm. So if you can think back to um, the Lacey Peterson case, she was uh, murdered at an advanced stage of pregnancy by her abuser. And um, then that led to the passage of the federal unborn victims of violence law, right? So like, like laws that are intended to protect pregnant people being turned against them for ending their own pregnancies. Mm-hmm. But then the last category is like literally anything else. Like a prosecutor can think, like there are no categories. When it comes to prosecution, like it really, if a prosecutor decides that they want to punish somebody, they're going to find a way to do it. And so, um, you know, common themes are just very antiquated laws, like uh, laws around concealment of a birth. And these, again, these are laws that were passed in the 1800s wow. to punish people um, for having births out of wedlock. Um, so, yeah, concealment of a birth, sometimes improper disposal of human remains. Like, that's kind of a weird right. Right. thing because, like, you know, people have miscarriages all the time and nobody tells you like what you're supposed to do. And, mm-hmm. and even people who try to do the right thing, there was a situation in California where um, a woman, you know, had saved the fetal remains because she wanted uh, to have them tested by her doctor to see like if there, there was some explanation for the miscarriage of this wanted pregnancy. And through this like convoluted chain of events that involved those serious misunderstandings, a police like essentially like a SWAT team broke into her home and like rummaged through her freezer because they had 
gotten a report that there were human remains in the freezer. So like there's there's almost no way to win. But I would say a lot of a lot of antiquated laws, which I think really speaks to a need to um, update criminal codes for the present day. And and some states have taken the lead on that. Like Massachusetts um, in 2017 passed the the uh, Negating Antiquated Statutes Targeting Young Women Act or the Nasty Women Act, um, which repealed a, a series of laws, you know, laws uh, criminalizing like fornication and adultery and like all these sort of weird, yeah, I mean, like they're, they're puritanical history really shows through in the criminal code and one of the laws that was repealed was the criminal abortion law that that it was actually like used against uh, a woman for self-managing with pills i think in 2007 so yeah so there's some some progress and definitely i mean in this current political moment uh, a recognition that we need to increase protections at the state level uh, at every level, really, right? Even at the municipal level, to the extent possible, um, because we just don't really know what the future of that convoluted row line of cases is going to be at the Supreme Court level. Oh, it's so Handmaid's Tale. All of the, the fact that these laws are coming from so long ago is just such a concrete, like, representation of how backwards everything is going right now. Where they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's let's bring this one back. Let's let's start talking about, you know, quickening again. I know you mentioned the the hotline and remind me of the name of the website so that folks can have that just sort of on their mind. Yeah, it's reprolegalhelpline.org. Awesome. So uh, and they can also get there they could get there through our website also, if one how.org. There are links aplenty so that people can find their way there. Beautiful. I was just wondering um, if you could offer any other tips for just sort of minimizing your legal risk in this space. Like what are things other than sort of consulting with a lawyer? I'm thinking about what my immediate concerns would be. It's like privacy. Like what what am I doing about surveillance? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, And these things also like so that nobody feels like they have to be writing this down. This is all the type of information that you can find um, at reprolegalhelpline.org because mm-hmm. we know that these are concerns that people have. Um, concerns about privacy and in particular digital privacy. Um, you know, we suggest resources where people can go, um, you know, if they're concerned about surveillance and whether that's surveillance by state actors or private parties, right? Because some people's reason for wanting to self-manage is uh, because they are experiencing intimate partner violence and they don't want other people in their lives to to find out, right? So um, we provide resources like the Electronic Frontier Foundation's um, Mm -hmm. surveillance self-defense toolkit where people can learn more about, you know, their digital footprint and how to minimize it. also understanding like what are the types of evidence that have been used in, in cases before. Um, and it's, you know, generally it's not like cloak and dagger, like, you know, CSI policing tactics. It's just very simple things like something that someone told to a friend who told to a friend who told, you know, who called the police, right? right? Like that run of the mill information sharing. Um, and then also, information that gets shared by healthcare providers to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we provide some information to people about what's the type of information that they have to share or don't have to share um, when they are seeking healthcare. So if somebody experiences a complication, we want them to be able to 
seek help that they need without worrying the information that they share is then later going to be used against them. And as a side note, we also are working with healthcare providers to help them understand their obligations to protect confidential patient information Mm -hmm. um, and help them understand that there's no obligation on their part to involve law enforcement um, if they suspect or know that somebody has ended a pregnancy. So those are the kind of things that people should really be thinking about are, um, you know, the, the internet connected devices that we use on a day-to-day basis are collecting a lot of information. So just being aware of that and how to manage the, the collection of that information um, and just how to be very mindful about what, you know, what type of information people share and with whom, um, just because once that uh, once the information is shared, where it goes really then becomes outside of the individual's control. Mm. So if you show up having self-managed your abortion, you, your doctor has no legal obligation to to report anything to the cops. Um, yeah, with a with a shade of nuance, right? They right. they are mandatory reporters in most states. It's just a question of what is it mandatory to report, and generally that is suspected. Uh, child abuse. Um, in some cases, it's people who come in with certain types of injuries, like uh, if somebody comes in with a, with a bullet wound or mm-hmm. a knife stab wound, like there is a mandatory report element to that. But there's nothing that's specifically reportable about having a miscarriage or, you know, even <laughs> even an induced miscarriage, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing to report there. It is definitely troubling to think of healthcare providers um, essentially acting as an arm of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that is a result of people's uh, political leanings, right? Like the physician who called law enforcement in Perfi Patel's case uh, is like known for being an anti-abortion activist. And it's like, you know, always fighting in their state house uh, in favor of abortion restrictions, right? Like there's, there's a, there's something politicized about that. Um, but for a lot of healthcare providers, I think it's just a misunderstanding of their responsibilities. And I, I think, <laughs> you know, I, that similarly to in the days before Roe, I think healthcare providers know that it makes no sense for um, law enforcement and fear of arrest to be inserted into these intimate aspects of people's lives. Um, just I think what they need is the security to know that, that they have the right and the responsibility to safeguard their patient's information. Mm-hmm. I know you kind of touched on it, but how does this conversation apply to um, companions? So whether whether that's in the form of a friend or a doula or a parent? Well, I mean, if it's if it's not a crime to experience a miscarriage or to cause one's own miscarriage, it's also not a crime for a person to provide support to a person who's, who's going through that experience. And I make a distinction between providing support and like actually providing the means to end a pregnancy or like, or yeah. assisting the person with ending the pregnancy in some way, right? That's, that um, entails a lot more legal risk because because the criminal abortion laws are, that's exactly who they're aimed at is people who are helping other people and their pregnancies. Um, I mean, that being said, we have seen situations in which, um, in which people who are providing childcare or like providing other types of support, uh, have been swept into criminal investigations as well. So, um, I mean, unfortunately, like 
even though people have a, a right to make decisions about their health care, they have a right to end a pregnancy, how that right actually looks or, or, you know, to what extent that right is going to be respected has a lot to do with like local prosecutorial culture and law enforcement culture. And so that applies equally to the individuals and to anybody who is uh, surrounding and supporting them with care. Yeah. How, so how are you feeling about the future of SMA? Um, optimistic. I, I think it's, you know, I think that this is one of those things that as it becomes more, more common knowledge or more a part of people's understanding of what abortion care can look like, I think it's going to become increasingly clear that this is not something that the state can continue to control in the way that it has. You know, my optimism is tinged with a little bit of worry because what it means for the state to try to control self-managed abortion is to try to control pregnant individuals in a, in a very, you know, direct um, and potentially harmful way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I am optimistic that that's not something that we're going to see come to pass because I have not, to this point, seen any real traction for like legal proposals that would impose criminal penalties on people who end their own pregnancies. I, I just don't think that that's, I think it's a step too far. Um, and I think that that's the kind of thing that has driven change um, in places that, in settings that have been really restrictive for a very long time, like Ireland and Northern Ireland, right? Like that the, just the threat of criminalization, I think like has, has led to um, a recognition that uh, on on the part of just the general public that's that's too much right like there's a step too far so so you know mostly hopeful (laughs) (sighs) um we've been we've been ending some of our conversations with this with this question if you had a megaphone and you were on the top of a building and you could share one thing with everyone either below you next to you above you what would be the thing that you would share at this exact moment Hmm. Uh, I guess the thing that popped straight into my head was nobody owns your body but you. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like kind of second wavy. <laughs> but that's, but you know, we'll, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. Yeah. And that's it for this episode. We want to get these stories to folks who are looking for them. If you know of anyone who wants to learn more about this topic, a friend, family member, or colleague, please share this episode with them. Our goal is to demystify this conversation and what that takes is talking about it. Head over to our website, smapodcast.org, to get the resources discussed in this interview, as well as the transcript, which we have in both Spanish and English. Thank you for listening and have a good one. Mm -hmm.